0: Lord Jesus, you are faithful, far more faithful than we deserve. You've promised that your word will not return void, that it will always accomplish precisely what you send it out to do. This morning, we know you have a hard word for us. Help us not to deflect or to shirk back or to find a way to tune out. Lord, hit us straight in our hearts. Shatter us again with your love. We pray in your precious name. Amen. December of 2003, a man named Kent Whitaker lay recovering in a Houston hospital. The gunman had missed his heart by six inches. And yet in another sense, his heart had gotten hit straight on. Because while Kent and his son had survived with injuries, Kent's wife and his second son did not. As he lay there in the hospital bed, he started processing what had happened, the pain that has been inflicted on his family and the sorrow in his own heart. This is what he told the Washington Post. He said, All I could feel for this person was an incredibly deep and powerful hatred. I was just thinking how I could inflict pain on him. My guess is most of us can understand how Kent would have those feelings in that moment. The deeper you are hurt, the easier it is to want to get even. This isn't a new concept. It's been all over the world from as far back as people go. It's all over our culture and our media. Just think through the different categories of movie and literature. Take a comedy like The Princess Bride. You've got Inigo Montoya hunting down the person that killed his father. Or what about the Western genre? I mean, pretty much every Western movie could be summed up with a revenge tale. Uh, Just take Clint Eastwood's Unforgiven. You don't even have to have watched the movie to know what that one's about. (laughs) Or what about in literature? Maybe in grade school, you were forced to read Moby Dick, and you read about Captain Ahab, so consumed by rage that he brought his men on a voyage into madness till the beast he hunted took his own life. Now, vengeance isn't far from any human heart. The only question is, how deeply do you have to be wounded before it rises up? This morning, Jesus speaks to this very sensitive, this most tender part of our heart, that desire to get even. And just like his words have been a sledgehammer up until now, Blow after blow, showing us how we fall short of God's law. This morning, these words are no exception. Jesus will show us that his followers should have no room in their hearts for vengeance. Instead, they must love those who've hurt them the most. We're going to see that as we move through verses 38 through 48 in three sections. Three things you got to do to keep vengeance out of your heart. First, we'll see that you have to release your rights to those who do you harm in verses 38 to 42. Then in verses 43 through 47, we'll see that you have to actually let loose your love on your enemies. Finally, in verse 48, the hardest of all, we have to pursue perfection as the God that we follow. Now, Jesus has been teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. This sections are called the six antitheses. It's really six sections where he is teasing out what he established in verses 17 through 20. That he hasn't come to replace the Old Testament or to do away with it. That he's actually here to shine a greater light on it. And there's these six sections that each show us how God's law actually is fulfilled in a greater way by followers of Jesus. With the new hearts that he gives them they actually achieve a new level of righteousness. Never possible before. This morning we're in the last two of those antitheses. Um, the, 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 each of them is introduced with that formula. You have heard it said, and then Jesus says, but I say to you. The, the first one had to do with uh, anger, and then one having to do with lust, then with divorce, and then with uh, having to do with truth-telling. And now these last two, both having to do with this topic of revenge in our hearts. As we study it together, we'll see Christians, we can't have a desire in our hearts that we foster to get even. Instead, we have to have love for those who hurt us the most. Let's begin by looking in verses 38 through 42, where Jesus tells us we have to release our rights to those who harm us. In verse 38, Jesus starts off with saying, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. Now, Jesus is here directly quoting several portions of the Old Testament, Exodus 21-24, Leviticus 24-20, Deuteronomy 19-21. It's a a principle they call the the lex talionis. Uh, The idea is it's the the law of revenge. And to modern ears, it sounds a little bit like the Old Testament is advocating a cycle of barbaric one-upmanship. Like, you get harmed by someone, they they punch out your eye, and the lex talionis sounds like it's giving you warrant to go punch their eye out too. But if you actually understood the, the way that God intended for this law to be applied, we would see that that's not the case. The lex talionis is actually putting a limit on the worst impulses of the human heart, the impulse toward revenge. If you're a parent, you probably know this dynamic well. The first offense usually leads to a greater offense in retaliation, right? Uh, So I I, uh, have some video evidence of my own depravity that uh, gets trotted out by my parents every once in a while, um, including at my wedding. Um, There's a video where my brother and I are playing in an area with some toys in front of a camera, and my brother has the prime spot right in front of the camera, and he's sitting there playing with some truck or something. And I, as the younger brother, come up, and I very nicely... I ask him, I'm like, hey, hey, Andy, would you go sit over there so I can play here with that toy? And he said, no, Tommy, no, I'm going to stay here. And so I ask a little more forcefully, no, no, you need to move. I'm going to play here. He's like, no, go away. And so I disappear off camera. And then a couple seconds later, I come back with the biggest truck I own. And I cock back and just slam it right across the back of the head. And at that point, the camera cuts off. LAUGHTER My parents intervene. Um, You know this as a parent, don't you? That you know it starts off with a mean word that turns into a shove, that turns into someone throwing, that turns into some uh, throwing something, which turns into someone biting. We don't just want to get even. We want to get ahead. We want to do them worse than they did to us. The Lex Talionis was given to restrain the cycle of violence. To keep someone from taking an offense and turning it into a blood feud that tears up families and tears the very nation apart. It was a judicial restraint, the maximum penalty allowable. Now, in Jesus' day, it had been turned into an excuse for personal revenge. People had said, instead of this being uh, the guidelines, which the laws that were upheld by the government or the, the local council, instead, this was what you were commanded to do or allowed to do as a person when someone harmed you. It was just a blanket excuse to go hurt someone the way they hurt you. Jesus says to this, verse 38, But I say to you, Thirty-nine, Sorry, verse 39. But I say to you, do not resist the one that is evil. Now, this is a hard phrase to interpret. Um, the commentaries have all sorts of different views on it. I think as we study that, what comes after, it will become obvious what Jesus is saying. But it's useful for us to explore a few of the different uh, interpretive options people have given. Some have taken this to say that Jesus is here teaching that there should be no attempt to restrain evil, even on the government level. So, for example, Leo Tolstoy, who uh, read this, came to the conclusion that this was Jesus' prohibition against police, armies, and judges. Now, I, I don't think that that is what Jesus had in mind. If we are a whole Bible Christian and we would assume that the Bible does not contradict itself... It doesn't take you very long to realize that there are other parts of the Bible that tell us about the very good things that come from restraint of evil through force. So, for example, 1 Peter 2, 13 and 14, written to persecuted believers by the government, by the way, said, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governor as sent by him, to punish those who do evil. And praise those who do good. Romans 12 also teaches the same, uh, sorry, Romans 13 also teaches the same thing that God actually has given us army and police forces out of his goodness to restrain the evil in human hearts, to keep us from being as bad as we could be. There's a a more nuanced version of this, it's a, a form of pacifism that says, well, okay, maybe Jesus wasn't here talking about nations and how a government should organize itself. But maybe this rules out that Christians can themselves support or be involved in any sort of restraint of evil through force, police, army, etc. There are many that have taken this view, and let me just say it's complicated, more complicated than we can go into fully here. But let me just give you two ways that you could see this is not what Jesus had in mind. If this were the case, when Jesus told his followers that they were to render under Caesar the things that are Caesar's, he would be contradicting himself, because the taxes that you pay to Caesar very quickly end up supporting Caesar's army. It also would have been very odd that the the people that become Christians that we see in Acts, including Roman soldiers are not told that they have to leave their, their vocation, they have to leave their posts. Uh, it, again, this is a, a nuanced sort of uh, discussion if you're interested in it. Um, the, the classic work on it comes from Thomas Aquinas. Uh, a more accessible book is from Dr. D.A. Carson called Love in Hard Places. It's something that all Christians at some point should wrestle with. But I don't think that Jesus is here saying that Christians cannot be involved in the restraint of evil. And if we apply this even outside the realm of the physical to the spiritual, the same sort of question needs to be asked. Is Jesus here teaching that Christians aren't supposed to resist evil in any sense? We're told in Scripture that we're supposed to resist the devil. We're told that Paul resisted Peter to his face when he was out of step with the gospel. So clearly that's not what Jesus is saying. So what in the world is he getting at? Well, as we go through these four examples he's going to give next, I think this principle emerges that Jesus is trying to teach us, is that citizens of heaven have no personal right to revenge. You have no personal right to harboring ill will toward anyone. And in fact, you need to release your rights. The first of the four examples he gives is a pretty famous one, it's that of turning the cheek it says in verse 39 <clears throat> sorry lost but there we go uh, but i say to you do not resist the one who is evil but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek turn to him the other also now assuming that you are right-handed to slap someone on the right cheek means you are using the back of your hand uh, that is not a pleasant thing to endure uh, it would hurt But it's not meant, especially back in Jesus' day, it was not meant as an injuring blow. It's meant as an insult. To backhand someone was to belittle them in front of others to show that you really are powerless. You are valued at nothing. It would be a bit like maybe you were in a a big conference call at, at your job or a big meeting, and someone very sternly tells you to sit down and shut up in front of everybody. You can feel your blood just beginning to boil over what that says about you in that context. This was an insulting, a deep personal insult. And Jesus says, instead of feeling like you need to get even, instead of cultivating that right to be outraged that someone would do that to you, he says, instead, turn your other cheek to him. Let him insult you a second time. The next one is no easier. Verse 40, it's the example of a, a lawsuit. In this case, he says, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Under Israelite law, there were certain limits on, over what you were allowed to have taken from you in judgment. Uh, people would commonly wear what's we called a, a tunic. It was kind of like a, a, a garment that was close to your body. It was often really expensive, It would be used in bartering or in transactions. So kind of like maybe in a movie, you saw someone take off their Rolex to use it as uh, collateral for something or to pay for something they didn't have money for. Uh, Back in those days, you might take off that inner garment because it was valuable and use it as a form of payment. If you lost a lawsuit of some sort, it was allowable for them to take the tunic off of your body. It was a valuable thing that everyone had on them. But there were limits on what they could take beyond that, specifically your outer garment, your cloak. Now, that was allowance for mercy. There were many people in that day, remember there was no social safety net back then. And so there were many people that if you took away their cloak, they literally would have had no way to keep themselves warm at night. That was their blanket in addition to their garment they wore. So there's this law that is in place that limits what can be taken away from you. Jesus says if someone sues you, he doesn't say whether you're at fault or not, he just says if someone sues you, and they only have the right to take so much from you, you should actually be willing to give up what they have no right to. You give up your right to revenge, you even give up your right to protections under the law. Third is the example of forced servitude in verse 41. Verse 41. He says, and if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Now, faithful Jews back in Jesus' day chafed at the fact that they were under the thumb of the Romans. There were what were called zealots, a a political uh, revolutionary type movement that wanted to try and overthrow the Romans. It's likely that among the Galilean peasants that Jesus is preaching to, some of them were either outright zealots or at least were sympathetic to the zealot idea. I mean, we're God's people. We should not be oppressed by these Gentile evil nation. Jesus says that there's an example where that oppression is very, very real to a Jewish civilian. The Romans were allowed to take those under their rule and ask them to help to carry things, luggage or weapons and things. And we have letters from the Roman Senate showing how soldiers had certain limits on how far and how much they were allowed to conscript these civilians into helping their army. Now, the soldiers were known for abusing that. They were known for rubbing it into the faces of those they had conquered. The Jews in Jesus' day would have hated this. It's hard to overstate how much they would have hated it. There seems to have been some law that they were allowed to ask them to carry this equipment for a full mile, but no further. Jesus says, when that happens to you, you don't grumble. You don't hold on to your right to be outraged. You don't stand on your right to only go one mile. You show it by going two. Fourth one is an example of someone asking you for money in verse 42. Verse 42. It says, give to the one who begs for you from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Poverty is not a new thing. Back in Jesus' day, there was a spiritual component to it also. People assumed if you were poor, then God somehow either had a curse on you or you were not as close to God as those who were rich. It was even easier than it is today to look down on the poor. Even today, though, you know that temptation in your heart don't you someone asks you for money asks you to help and maybe at some points it's easy to do but at others you start to resent them that they would infringe upon your hard-earned money Jesus says that you are to give up your right to penny pinch give up your right to feel as if someone's taking advantage of you even friends even if they are Now, there's a lot of wisdom that needs to be used in applying these verses. And let me just say, it would be a mistake to take these four illustrations Jesus uses and try to use them as blanket commands for every situation that comes anywhere close to them. Uh, Jesus is not here saying that we should allow people to perpetuate cycles of abuse. This is not giving warrant for someone to physically harm us and not to intervene in any way to defend ourselves or even worse to not defend someone else this is not saying that you empty your bank account to the first person that comes and asks you now friends this is about the vengeance that's present in each of our hearts the resentment that builds up when we feel like our rights are being trampled upon Jesus is here showing us that as citizens of heaven, we have no rights except the rights given to us by our God. And if he gave them to us, friends, he can ask us at any point to give them up. We'll see in a little bit that there is a limiter on this because Jesus tells us that we actually must love those that harm us. And and love sometimes asks us to do some very hard things, including confronting evil. But we just need to pause at this moment and ask ourselves, are we ready to give up our rights if that's what it takes to keep vengeance out of our heart? You know, when you're at home and maybe you're the one doing all the cleaning up, you're the one doing the dishes and doing all the cooking and all the parenting, do you start to feel a little underappreciated in your heart? Like you deserve a little more recognition, a little more time off. You start to find yourself Maybe with a hint of anger and malice. Jesus says, friend, you've got to give up that right to be angry. You've got to serve as if you were serving God himself. Do you ever have someone do something really awful to you? Maybe say something particularly biting to you. And you end up spending the whole rest of your day just replaying that conversation in your head again and again and again. Just getting more and more bitter about it thinking up all the comebacks you wish you'd had in the moment. Jesus says, friends, you've got to give up your right to be treated well if you're going to keep vengeance out of your heart. Friends, as citizens of heaven, we are called to an incredibly high standard. The desire to get even will keep us from glorifying Jesus the way we ought to. Now, it's going to play out differently in different arenas of life. And believe me, I recognize there are. there's a lot of wisdom that goes into how to apply this. But don't let the force of it miss you. You have to be willing to give up to keep your heart free of vengeance. Remember the unlimited grace that was lavished upon you. Remember how it was that God gave and gave and gave. How his son even gave up his own rights so that you could become a citizen of heaven. Now he tells you, turn around. When people harm you, give up your right to vengeance. Even harder still, though, is not just keeping our heart free from vengeance, is that in a passive way, we also have to actively do something even harder. We have to love our enemies. That's what he shows us in verses 43 through 47 there's a man named Daryl Davis who has a very odd hobby. Davis is a black man that his hobby is befriending KKK members. Uh, Decades ago, he decided that he didn't understand how white supremacists and racists could hate him without even knowing him. So he decided instead of just allowing his heart to get bitter and allowing himself to get more fearful of them, that he would try and talk with them. So uh, Daryl started inviting them to lunch, to sit down, to have conversations, and he decided in his heart he was truly going to love these people. Now, over the years, he's been called a lot of awful things. He's heard some really, really terrible things said about him. But you know what's happened? He's convinced over 200 members of the KKK to leave the organization. And he has the trophies to prove it. Because when they leave, they give him their robes and their hat. There's a documentary that came out about him a few years ago. There's an article in, which he, in Christianity Today where he uh, explains the reason he's able to do this is because Daryl is a Christian. Now, it's one thing to keep vengeance out of your heart. To to just not let bitterness set in. It's quite another to actually love someone that really hates you. Jesus tells us here, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, once again, the teachers in Jesus' day are taking a little bit of truth and twisting it. Here's a a quotation from Leviticus 19.18 where it said you must love your neighbor as yourself. Now, you'll notice the second half of that phrase gets dropped. There's both a subtraction and an addition that both serve to twist this uh, command that God gave us. So by dropping as yourself, it changes the quality of the love you have to have for somebody. But then they added on to that phrase, you must love your neighbor and hate your enemy. The logic went like this. If there's a certain group I have to love, that means there should be a certain group that I should hate, right? Well, that's not true, friends. It's said nowhere in the Bible that you have to hate your enemies. And it became a blanket excuse for religious people to identify groups of people that they hate and to justify acting evil toward them. Jesus identifies this and He says in verse 44, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Really, Jesus? Really? Love my enemies? The people who have hurt me most. The people who hate me. Those are the people you're telling me, you, that I have to love? Jesus says, when you start asking that question, friend, you are finally hearing what he has to say. It's impossible on our own. It's impossible out of the heart of man. It takes a work of God to do this. Jesus gives us two ways we can accomplish it. The first is to know who you're like. In verse 45, he, he says, So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. We've also already seen Jesus use this idea of sonship to say that you are engaged in the same activity as your daddy. That you're acting like God when you do this thing. Jesus says one way that you are to love your enemies is to realize that when you do so, you are acting like God himself. And then he gives an illustration of it. He says, uh, just look outside. Look at the clouds. Look at the rain that falls from them. Look at the sunshine. Realize that the water that falls from those clouds, it doesn't just fall on your crops it falls on the crops of evil people too, people that are God's enemies. When it's a sunny day outside and your mood is lifted, it's not just sunny for people that love God. It's sunny for people who hate him. Theologians call this common grace. It's a type of love that God has for those creatures he's created, not a love that saves them or guarantees they go to heaven, but a love that provides the very necessities of life and all the things that we enjoy. See, if God created us and sustains us, the fact that we have a roof over our heads, food on our plates, even breath in our lungs, that is God's love for us. Jesus says, look to the example of your heavenly Father. He loves his enemies by showering them again and again. And again, with grace that they don't deserve. Second way you'll do it. Remembering who you're different from. Verses 43, 46 to 47. He says, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? So here Jesus shows how citizens of heaven are actually supposed to act differently from the way the world reacts when people harm them, because otherwise we're really just loving people from self-interest. Have you noticed it's easy to be nice to people that are nice to you? You come across someone, a cashier that's smiling and asking how you are, it's easy to reciprocate. What about when they're rude and don't want to make eye contact? Is it easy to be loving to them? Jesus says that the natural way of this world is to love people that love you. The test of whether you are a follower, test of if you're a citizen of heaven, is do you love people that don't love you back? Alfred Plummer wrote, to return evil for good is devilish. To return good for good is human. To return good for evil is divine. Jesus is calling us here to something that our hearts, frankly, can't muster up without God doing a miracle inside of them. And yet, if you're a follower of Jesus here this morning, you are called to live that miracle out, to actually love your enemies. Now, maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I wonder if you're living under the impression that God owes you some manner of a pleasant life, that he owes you people around you that love you, maybe for you to achieve your dream, maybe for you to have a healthy body and a healthy family. So much of our society acts as if God is on the hook to keep us in a safe, comfortable place. That's not what the Bible teaches us about our relationship to God. The Bible tells us that we are actually God's enemies. That if we got what we deserved from God immediately, it would be nothing except punishment, the just punishment for sins as we have rebelled against God in our hearts. Brandon, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I just hope you recognize God's kindness and love to you. Each and every day that you've woken up, Each and every day that you've had something in your stomach, each smile you've experienced, each hug that you've had, each ray of sunshine is showing you that the God who made you loves you. And friend, that kindness and love is intended not to let you live for yourself, but to draw you back to him. See, we Christians believe that we have experienced God's love not because we've earned it or we had a right to it, but because God's just that sort of God. That he would overlook so many of our sins, pay the penalty of them himself by sending his son down to die on a cross for people who aren't his friends, but are his enemies. Friend, that's the God that I hope you want to know. If you want to know him, all you've got to do is come and meet Jesus. The very man who spoke this hard word 2,000 years ago is available to meet you to change your heart from the inside out, to totally do away with your sin if you'll just come to Him. Now, as you're here this morning and you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, I hope you hear the standard that Jesus is laying before you. If God loves His enemies, including you and me, if He's loved us so much that He actually changed us from his enemies to his friends, then, brothers and sisters, we have to love those, even those that hurt us the most. Now, again, there's much wisdom needed in implying this. This is not teaching that you are to allow people to continue to harm you or someone else in your family. This is not teaching that there's never a point where you restrain evil if you are able. In fact, love sometimes requires that of us to love someone so much that we don't keep enabling but find a way to actually help them, to keep them from the disaster that they're bringing upon themselves and others. And yet, friends, we need to do a work in our own hearts that we would actually desire the best for others, especially people that hurt us. One way you can know whether your heart's in the right place, ask yourself, whoever it is that as you're just finding it hardest to love, are you actively praying for them? Not just praying that they would stop annoying you or stop hurting you. Are you actually praying that God would get through to them? That he would bless them? That he would show them mercy and kindness? Friends, if vengeance is nowhere to be found in our hearts, in its place is to be found love. Love for the people who hurt us the most. Maybe you're here this morning as a Christian and you don't think you have any enemies. There's no one that you have intentional animosity toward. Friend, if so, that's great. But if this is true for the most extreme examples, it's certainly true for the people that in less extreme ways inflict injuries on us. Friend, if you find yourself being passive-aggressive, find yourself with a harsh tone towards your kids, you find yourself just a little bit jealous of someone at work, Friend, this is a, a word to you that you actually need to have love in your heart toward that person, even when that person is making your life harder. It's a hard word. And frankly, it's a word that's only possible with the Spirit's help from a transformed heart. Jesus tells us we are to love our enemies. These last two hammer blows, I hope you are realizing, are showing us that none of our hearts are where they ought to be yet. That God is still renovating each and every one of us that call ourselves citizens of heaven. And that's what makes verse 48 both so devastating and so comforting all at once. Because we've been told that we need to release our rights to those who hurt us. And that we need to let loose our love on our enemies. And now we're told that God's standard is actually perfection. That we have to pursue perfection. Jesus ends this whole section that he's been building toward with these six antitheses. With this one verse which undo does the most prideful of hearts. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Now, Jesus is not here teaching what is known as perfectionism. The idea that Christians in some way are to uh, get rid of so much sin in their hearts that they end up being totally perfect in God's sight, this side of heaven. That you can have a spiritual breakthrough enough or do enough uprooting of spiritual, uh, spiritually sinful roots that... At some point, you become spotless in God's eyes. That is not what this is teaching. Jesus is showing us the standard that we are all held to. And friends, it's a standard that only one person has ever lived up to. You see, we are to pursue perfection as we pursue the perfect one, Jesus himself. Pastor Mark Dever said that as Jesus has been preaching in the Sermon on the Mount, he has been painting a picture of, of the perfect Israelite. And that perfect Israelite is Jesus himself. If you're not sure what it means to live out the Christian life. You're not sure whose example you are to look to. We are to look to the example of Jesus. He was the one who had every right in the world to keep people from harming him. He was the one who endured not just a slap on the cheek, but repeated blows from cruel soldiers. He was the one that had his legal rights stripped from him in a mock trial in a miscarriage of justice. He was the one that gave and gave and gave till so there was nothing left. He was the one who had not just his tunic, and his cloak taken, but his very clothes, his undergarments, were distributed to evil soldiers. And even as the nails were being driven into his hands, he was the one who said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Love for enemies. We look no further than the example of our Savior, who loved each and every one of us with his dying breath. Friends, if you are not sure what it means to pursue Christ in this way, to work at your holiness, become more and more like him, let me just recommend to you something we're going to be starting at the beginning of August. There's going to be a study through J.C. Ryle's book, Holiness, uh, led by one of our small group leaders, Jonathan Mertz. Uh, It'll be happening at the 9 o'clock hour. Uh, That's one of the classic Christian books that you need to read and apply to your life. If you're not sure what it means to to walk in this path of pursuing Jesus toward perfection, let me encourage you toward that. Jesus tells us there's to be no vengeance in our hearts. We are to release our rights to those who harm us. We are to love our enemies. And ultimately, that means we are to pursue perfection. Talked about Kent Whitaker laying there in that hospital room in Houston, he felt that burning desire for revenge on the one who had inflicted pain on him and his family. But fortunately, Kent is a Christian. So while revenge was present in his heart, so was grace. He said, I was wrestling with my faith, but God met me in the hospital room on the night of the shooting and help me arrive at a miracle forgiveness for everyone involved. As soon as that happened, there was a warm glow that flowed over me. It took the fire out of me. Now what Kent didn't know was the one that had inflicted this pain on him was actually his surviving son. And God's kindness he had already broken Kent's heart before he found out that fact. He says, I live with the extent of the loss every day, and I'm aware of how much it costs me. And I'm completely aware that all of that loss was the result of the decisions made by my son. But God helped me reach the complete forgiveness, and I think He did that to help me rebuild my relationship with my son. Friends, you're called to love those who hurt you most. It's not something you can do on your own. Look to the perfect one, Jesus. And you'll find vengeance has no place in your heart. Instead, you'll find it filled with love. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, what hard word you have given us only by seeing the end of our need to stand on our own rights the end of the need to defend ourselves the end of the need to avenge the wrongs done against us only when that has happened in our hearts could we possibly live up to this remind us what you did when you marched to that cross Remind us how you gave up your rights to love enemies like us. Help us now to honor you as we sing this song, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.